boy, what is it? I mean, now to me, depression just feels like, you know, that my that my brain is sick and that my thoughts are broken. All the time, there's that little internal voice going, you are a failure as a parent. You are a terrible human being. It sounds really dumb and and melodramatic to to explain it and say it that way. You know, like it is sadness and it is, you know, a sort of down feeling, but it's also this very isolating feeling where I'm like, I can't connect to things. Like the things that I depend on to know who I am, to know my place in the world, I can't, I don't see them when I'm depressed. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough and mature enough to be able to intellectually understand how stupid that is. But I can't convince my inner dialogue with logic. You know, does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not really not sure I'm explaining this well. I'm just like, nah, blue sky doesn't mean anything to me. Like, <laughs> you know, this, you know, love that I, ha unconditional love that I have for my child, like, whatever, it's probably biological. Like, it, you just sort of get cut off from things. I mean, there's been a few points this year where I, didn't want to see what happened. Like, I, I didn't want to keep going. And I'm proud of myself for getting through that and just focusing on surviving another day. You know, at the end of it, I'm just like, oh no, I'm just at the bottom of a well. Emergencies do something to our brains. A few months after a catastrophe, people find themselves more irritable and less able to concentrate. Rates of depression and anxiety rise. Same with substance use and suicide. Scientists have watched this happen in disaster after disaster. Hurricane Katrina, 9-11. It's hard to say exactly when our current disaster started. We're now past the anniversary of the first COVID-19 diagnosis in the US. A lot of people point to March 11th, 2020 as the day things got real. The day the NBA canceled its season. The day the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a pandemic. However you look at it, our bodies have endured nearly a year of chronic stress and disruption. I'm Will James. This is Transmission. A few months ago, I started hearing public health officials talk about the coming winter the winter we're in now, as a kind of perfect storm for mental health problems. First, you've got the darker, colder months here in the Pacific Northwest and in other parts of the country. And the holidays, when some people tend to get depressed even in a normal year. Then you've got the fact that coronavirus numbers were just getting worse and worse. And then there's this post-disaster mental exhaustion that public health officials were warning about. At the beginning of winter, I started reaching out to strangers to find out what they were going through and what it felt like, and most importantly, how they were getting through it. I ended up having these long, frank, and sometimes funny conversations with a whole range of people about their mental health. Some of them had never sought therapy before in their lives, but here they were, seeking help for the first time. Others had almost lifelong mental health struggles that got worse just as treatment got harder to find. And then there were people who knew they had tendencies for depression and similar problems, but they thought they were over it, that it was all in the past. 
My name is Jennifer Pemberton, and I live in Juneau, Alaska, where I'm the managing editor of the newsroom, the public media newsroom here at KTOO. Um, but of course, like everyone else, I'm currently coming to you live from my closet where I'm hiding from my three-year-old right now. I um, have suffered from clinical depression for most of my adult life, or all of my adult life. Um, didn't get a diagnosis until much later in life than I wish I would have. So Jennifer's kind of an expert in depression, at least her own depression. Three years ago, she had a breakthrough. She had a son, and she was considered at such high risk for postpartum depression that she and her doctors braced for it. But it didn't happen. And around that same time, she also got treatment for a long-standing thyroid disorder. It looked like her depression was over. I, it was the best I felt in a very long time. And I was very tempted, actually, for those three years to be like, oh, I guess I just had a thyroid problem and everything was fine. And then, and then the pandemic hit. You know, it was chaotic. But I run a newsroom and I, I just was like amped, right? Like, you know, it was like the breaking news story that never ended. And there's definitely an adrenaline rush. And I rode that high for a very long time. I mean, I would say there was like six months where I was like, people would ask me how I was doing and I would say, you know, I can't complain. Mental health experts call this the honeymoon phase of a disaster. It's a period right after an emergency when people tend to feel energized and full of purpose. It can last a few months, but six to nine months in, people tend to crash. If I think back on it, it kind of started with an, an irritability and like, a, at least at work, I was suddenly just like, we're not doing enough COVID stories. You know, and this is like the elections ramping up. There's all these other things to do. And I found myself and I don't, I'm not, I don't yell and I don't yell at my staff, but in my head, I just was like, we're not doing enough, we're not doing enough. And that meant that my work stopped feeling meaningful and I just was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not helping anyone right now. Like, <laughs> I'm worthless. And that was kind of like, it was a very, very steep decline to like, why are we even here? Jennifer's son's preschool would close periodically when the virus spiked up, and her husband's work in the tourism industry dried up, and she was trying to be a parent while running a newsroom out of her closet. And one day she woke up, and it just felt like everyone had been under the same roof for way too long. There was a very bad day when my, my husband went out of town. D daycare was open again. It was late August, and I dropped my kid off at preschool. I went to drop him off. And I open the door and nobody's there and the, the daycare is closed. Like parents get to talk to their kids out loud, but it's really talking to yourself out loud. So I just looked at them. I'm like, oh, what are we going to do today? I guess mommy's going to get some work done while you're OK, cool. And so like we walk home and I was on deadline. Like I had a story I was working on. And I just was like, I guess I'm going to throw him in front of the TV for as long as I can. You know, he was like two and a half at the time um, and see how long this lasts. And I was doing Zoom interviews and and then a, a public official got really mad at me about my story and sent me one of the most berating emails I've ever gotten in my professional career. And I just like my 
kid was like, my show's over. Like, you know, like Netflix would not, he got to the bottom of Netflix where it stopped auto-generating new, new episodes. And, and I was just sobbing at my laptop. First of all, you can't parent and run a newsroom at the same time. It's like, why did we ever expect anybody to be able to do this? And yeah, and then I just crashed. And then the next morning I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I was like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't, I didn't care about what was waiting for me at work. I didn't care about my audience and what they needed to know. Uh, I had to take the day off because the daycare was closed all week. And I just was like, all right, it's over. <laughs> I'm done. Did you instantly recognize that as depression? No which is crazy because, you know, the first clue, like not getting out, wanting to get out of bed is pretty classic. <laughs> um, so this, I was just like, well, you had a really bad day. Like, you know, of course it's hard. Of course it, this is really hard. It's hard for everyone. Like you should feel this way, which lasted a couple of hours. And then I was like, oh, I remember you. I remember this feeling. You know, I'd been through sort of enough therapy to be like, oh, the thought cycle, you know, that went from, you've had a bad day to why are you alive to you're a bad mom to you're not good at your job and you know like just absolutely spiraled from there in my mind it happened in 24 hours but it probably was more like weeks you know of just like I'm sort of burned out on this feeling or like I'm not feeling as effective as I could be or you know I think that there was probably a lot of that leading up to it this crash Jennifer experienced in late August, she wasn't alone. This is what mental health experts call the disillusionment phase, and it tends to strike six to nine months after disaster starts. We'll get back to Jennifer and the way she coped with her depression, which surprised even her. But first, around this same time, a man hundreds of miles away from Jennifer is hitting his own disillusionment phase. Um, so my name is Corey Snow. I uh, live in Olympia, Washington. I've lived here my whole life, except for the time that I spent in the Army and a little bit right after that. I'm a former software developer. About 10 years ago, I switched over to become a full-time audiobook narrator and voice actor. Uh, and that's what I do now. I, uh, I work out of my home. And I also, uh, before coronavirus took over the planet, I used to drive a school bus. Corey lives with his wife and two kids. And before the pandemic, his bus driving got him out of the house. But since most in-person learning has shut down, he's at home a lot more. And the only time he really gets out is to run errands. My wife is an asthmatic, diabetic, stroke victim who has had multiple surgeries on her brain and spine. If, if she were to contract COVID-19, I, I really don't care to think about the possibilities of how that would turn out because she's pretty much hits all the marks for these are extremely high risk categories. So I'm the only one who can go out. I'm the only one who can run the errands outside. I'm the only one who will be able to, to handle all of the things that we need to do to manage our house during this time. And there's a lot of pressure and stress. In addition to, I have to keep working. And I make no mistake, I'm incredibly grateful that I have a job right now. I know how privileged I am to even 
have a job that continues to pay, but at the same time, I can't pretend that the stress isn't real. Without bus driving keeping him on a schedule, his sleep patterns got stranger and stranger, until he was starting his days almost in the middle of the night. I began to notice patterns of behavior that, like, I would get really, really irritable and snappish. I would look back on these things and I could start to see a pattern of, like, this didn't happen once or twice. He'd snap at one of his kids for not doing a chore or he'd argue with his wife. Then he'd look back and see that it was petty and judge himself pretty harshly. I was castigating myself constantly for all of my silly little perceived failures. And especially when those failures affected people I love, it would be even worse. It was like amplifying it 10 times. And so it created this vicious cycle of constantly being negative to myself and then that manifesting itself with some sort of behavior that afforded me the opportunity to be negative to myself. It was getting hard for him to focus on the audiobooks he was narrating. He'd procrastinate. The amount of recording he could knock out in a day got to be less and less. Some days I couldn't get anything done. I would sit down and I would start recording and I would just make a mistake every two sentences and I would it was just bad. And so that would result in me telling myself, God, you suck so much. You are just the worst. You know, you've got clients depending on you. You've got customers who are waiting. You've got angry authors and publishers who are just ready to fire your stupid behind and, and kick you to the curb. Now, intellectually, I knew that probably wasn't true. Most of my clients, customers and publishers are we have good relationships, and they're very understanding when things happen. But that doesn't have any impact on that internal voice that's constantly beating you up for all your failures. Uh, my name's Christina Jumper. I'm 28 years old. I've lived in Seattle for two years. Over the last year and a half, I got my first big girl job uh, in marketing after working at Starbucks for seven years. And then COVID happened and everything kind of went to shit. <laughs> Christina's been dealing with depression for as long as she can remember. It's manifested as self-harm, addiction to alcohol, and bulimia, an eating disorder. A little while before the pandemic, in 2019, Christina went to rehab and stopped using alcohol, but her bulimia got much worse. She was looking for treatment right when the pandemic struck. So I work in the events industry, so we kind of got wind of the pandemic before the general public did. We, you know, you, you started getting a trickling of canceled events, and then there was a week in March where, like, everyone was canceling at once. My bosses brought everyone together and basically said that, Everyone was getting laid off. This was like March 9th. You know, I, I lost the job that I worked so hard for, lost my income, lost my independence. And at the same time, like you're watching the world crumble, but you can't do anything about it. Just feeling really helpless in that regard. Christina decided to use her layoff as an opportunity to go back home to her family in Virginia, take a break, and treat it almost like rehabilitation for her eating disorder. But that's not what happened. 
Before she was laid off, she had been taking Prozac and in therapy, and she stopped both suddenly when she moved back home, away from her doctors. The home environment for me has always been kind of mixed. It, it can be triggering, and so, you know, I found myself in the situation of being back with my parents, not making any money, the world's collapsing as I know it, and so, yeah, it just kind of got worse. After six weeks in Virginia, she came back to Seattle in May and started working again part-time. But her physical and mental health was getting worse. I mean, basically, I was throwing up everything I ate. I was abusing laxatives and caffeine. I, I kind of felt like I was living two lives because on the surface, I was living as normally as I could in the middle of a pandemic like, like everyone was. But then, you know, in the wee hours of the night when I was alone, I would just go back to all my old behaviors. You know, I would spend hours and hours binging and purging and then get up and exercise and then go to work like nothing was wrong. What ultimately drove Christina to seek help wasn't her health, but her finances. She says binging and purging is expensive and she was running out of money. I did the calculations and um, realized that if I kept living the way I was living, I would be homeless. That was what finally pushed me to start getting help. She started looking for a therapist. The first one she talked to said Christina's bulimia meant she could go into cardiac arrest at any moment and she needed a higher level of care. So Christina went to an emergency room. They ran some tests and while she was dehydrated, they said she was stable and they released her. So one person's telling Christina she's too sick to help and someone else is saying she's not sick enough. I kept spiraling downwards, like there were things I told myself I would never do, like use my credit card to buy food or, you know, hide it from loved ones. That I, I just found myself stooping to lower levels. You know, I'm trying to be normal and all the while there's this big part of my life that it kept taking more and more of my life, like more of my time, more of my energy, more of my money. And at the same time, you know, everyone's going through this crisis, and so I felt like it wasn't, um, I felt like it wasn't bad enough to talk about. Like, there's people who are way worse off than me. Like, I still have a roof over my head. I still have a job, and, you know, there's other people who don't have that. And so um, that was one reason that I kept silent about it. Eventually, Christina did start looking for a therapist again. That's when she ran up against a new reality of the pandemic. A lot of other people were seeking mental health care too. I think I called like four or five. I left a bunch of voicemails. And uh, you know, wh while I was searching for a therapist, I was also searching for a psychiatrist to get back on meds, which I still haven't found one. A lot of people don't have openings right now. The, the good news is telehealth is really booming. Like a lot, there's a lot of therapists out there who will see you uh, remotely, but the bad news is the availability is limited. But after a while, Christina did find a therapist. We've been working on, you know, mindfulness practices and stuff like that. But I think ultimately that, that alone isn't enough. At, at this point right now, I'm just kind of focusing on harm reduction. Back in Olympia, Corey, the audiobook narrator and former bus driver, he also reached a point where it was time to seek help. 
He says it never should have taken a pandemic for him to confront his depression, which he suspects has been around for years. But that's what happened. The pandemic ratcheted up pressure to the point he finally had to recognize he couldn't deal with it on his own. For men my age in this culture in the United States, you don't cry, you don't show emotions, you got to be tough and manly. And it's so stupid. And I know it. And I have known it for a long time, but it's really difficult to get away from those things that were kind of like ingrained into you that were inculcated at a young age. I had known for a while that I should probably start looking at seeing a, a therapist. And this is something I knew before the pandemic hit. But it didn't really become like an issue that I felt I needed to address critically until probably, I don't know, about a month ago, three weeks ago. I guess it was probably about a month. And I don't remember the specific day. I just remember it was one or two days after I'd had a, you know, a, a blow up with uh, my wife and I had just snapped at her. I apologized and explained what was going on. And, you know, she said, you should probably think about seeing some help. And I said, yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. I don't know how to go about it. I was like, I, I don't know the questions to ask. I don't know who to talk to. I don't even really see a regular doctor. In a part of me, I wasn't really brave enough to, to do that on my own. Corey asked his wife for help finding treatment. And so she did and got me an appointment with a person who I have seen uh, once and we're going to see again in a little while. Uh, and even that one session has been very helpful and it's given me some, some good insight. So I'm looking forward to the next one. When I start to feel these negative emotions, and I'll be completely honest, it happens whether I want it to or not, and I'm, I'm only just beginning the process of being able to deal with this, but I start making these, it's like a, almost a, like a slightly ritualized internal thing where I go, no. And I visualize myself as a child and go, I'm going to love myself today. I'm going to be that child for a bit. And then I also, when I start to get those negative thoughts and that internal monologue that starts to be like, hey, hey, you suck. I was like, no, I don't. No, I do not. And it works for a while. And it, it, it's not great. It's not like suddenly somebody turned on the lights and it's like, you know, there's you know, choirs of angels singing and, you know, ah, everything's great. No, it's still just as bad as it was. Not quite so. One day, someone from one of the publishing companies Corey works with reached out to him because he was behind on an audiobook project. The email said basically, hey, where's the rest of this? We need this done. I explained to them what was going on and why I was in such a funk and also said, look, I'm really sorry that this has become a problem. Here's the things that I'm doing to deal with it. I'm seeing a therapist. I'm trying to make some changes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I got an email a little later that day from one of the people I contacted. And this person said, I totally get it. We've been seeing this across the industry. It's everywhere. And I didn't know that, right? It was just a very polite sort of like, hey, I acknowledge this. You're a good person and you have value to us and thank you for telling us. It was just a very simple professional email, right? I broke down in tears. I absolutely collapsed. I'm a 50-year-old guy, right? I don't cry. Actual sobbing, 
unable to breathe through my nose, just blubbering, drooling, red-faced, can't talk for an hour. I absolutely dissolved, and it was just amazing. It's okay to be struggling and to be in pain, even if you're not in as much as someone else in some way or another. We all have our own private hell, and just because someone else's exists doesn't mean mine doesn't. In Juneau, Alaska, Jennifer, who was running a newsroom through the pandemic, she was having a very different experience trying to find treatment. Through her insurance, she had access to an online counseling service, and at first she was relieved. What I thought it was was like telehealth. I was like, cool, I'm going to Zoom with someone. It's the best that I can do, and it's going to be like it was when I've gone to therapy before, just, you know, through a camera. But it wasn't like that. Instead of a video meeting with a person's face on a screen, what she got was an empty chat box. It's asynchronous. So basically, like, you type up your feelings, and then they have 12 hours to respond. And it was so unsatisfying to me. I was like, I just wanted somebody to look at me and just be like, here I am. I'm, I'm at the bottom. I'm embarrassed that I got here as quickly as I did and that I didn't recognize any of the signs. But, like, I am... I'm at the bottom of this and just start doing your thing. Like, do the thing that they're, like, help me. Around this same time, Jennifer logs onto Facebook and notices a post by an old neighbor from when she was in college. She taught poetry at the University of Idaho in Moscow. She lived right across the street in this cute Victorian house. She was a little mysterious, didn't come out that much. Nobody really, you know, we didn't know her. She was just kind of that, like... The rumor was that there was a pentagram in her backyard. And so, you know, that was, she was that person on the block. Just like, oh, Maria. Like she was a witch or something? Yeah, yeah, totally. Back then, that neighbor, Maria, ended up introducing Jennifer to astrology. And now, two decades later, that's what Maria was talking about again on Facebook. She started posting these horoscopes, just sort of beautiful, long Facebook posts about, like, here's what the new moon is doing to everybody right now. I wasn't like living my life by them, but I was just so enriched. And um, I, what I found is that I just really wanted somebody to tell me what was going on that wasn't me. You know, that isolation and that loss of connection that I was talking about, when somebody was like, write about that, how do you feel? I'm just like, I feel disconnected from the world. And then on the other hand, I had somebody, you know, writing about all of the ways that we're all connected <laughs> to all of the things. I was like, that's, I choose that. Like, <laughs> I want to read that. Can I, can I read one to you? Let me see if I can find it really quickly. So the one right before the election the future may seem to be closing in on you with an overwhelming paradox of fate and uncertainty, but don't give up on your dreams. Family or friends may appear suddenly to help or talk things out. Your emotional insights can come just as suddenly to you in a way that reverses the seeming inevitability that you fear. I think it's important to go down this road for a second. So you're a journalist. You live in a, a world of facts and evidence. 
How do you explain to people how astrology became therapeutic to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, this is, it feels a little bit like a dirty secret, especially as a journalist, to just be like, you guys, you know, like, I don't have a single bumper sticker on my car. Like, you know, I'm a blank slate. I don't share opinions on social media. Like, but here's the thing, like, I'm actually really, really into astrology and I'm really specifically into sort of these horoscopes. Astrology for me is not something that you believe in. It's not like religion. It's not something you have to sort of like have faith to believe in. It's for me, it's like if you read a really good novel and you learn something about yourself from a novel, we don't say like, well, but is that truth or is that real? That didn't actually happen. Those aren't facts. It's just like, well, if the feeling that you have, you know, if the discovery that you have is real, then like, why are we arguing about facts? And I should say, I haven't mentioned this, like I am not ever gonna knock therapy. Therapy saved my life and I, I owe everything to, <laughs> you know, sort of learning about depression and the counselors that I've had and, um, and the treatments that I've done. Um, so this is like not an endorsement of like, ditch your therapist and start reading horoscopes. The moral of the story is maybe like, you know, you, you do you, like figure out what works for you. And for me, it really helped me feel better. <laughs> um, if I felt like super disconnected, this gave me connection. Can you, are you able to bring up her latest uh, post? Whenever that was? It says, perhaps you have been awash in potentialities that make it hard to take decisive action. Your new beginning can counter that with a transformation of your philosophy of life through speaking up about matters of life and death in a legal or educational or religious setting. You can feel brave enough to embrace a larger truth. And I would argue that that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> What's something you would want to say to someone who is going through a mental health struggle right now just to be like really on the lookout for the thing that's gonna help you and you know like because it's there and it's sort of like dangling its arm and it's you know it might be too dark to see what it is but like you know whether it's like you're you really get into a netflix series or you find a small spark of joy and like petting your dog or like in the way you know that the sun looks at a certain time of day or like whatever it is if you feel a little tiny spark of joy to recognize it and to be like okay I'm not I'm not cut off I can still feel things <laughs> you know I can still feel love I can still feel beauty As Jennifer was learning this lesson, figuring out the right things to notice, Corey was learning what not to pay attention to. You don't have to listen to that critical voice in your head. That's his takeaway. I'm just going to say it this way. I get it. I care. And I love you in a way that says you have value. You are not the things 
that that voice is telling you. It's okay to ask for help. And it's okay to need help. It's all right. It's all right to need help. Even if you are with other people who also need help, it's okay for you to need it as well. Meanwhile, Christina, who's struggling with bulimia and depression, took a very different lesson from the pandemic. I think the biggest thing I've learned is just not to get comfortable. You're never as safe as you think you are. There's always things that can happen that shake you to your core and make you rethink everything you thought you knew about yourself and about the world and the system, you know, everything. But there is something, not quite a silver lining, but just a feeling that now she's a little less alone. When you are mentally ill, like everything feels like a crisis. Everything feels like life or death, but it's all internal. And a lot of us have to struggle in silence. But this year has kind of forced everyone to go through that. Like everyone is having a crisis right now. Everyone is experiencing what it's like to have anxiety or depression. You know, I think it, it's been validating in that I think I can walk up to someone that previously might not have known what I was experiencing and instantly find a common ground because we've both been through this year. Uh, today, I'm, I'm feeling weirdly optimistic. At the time of this interview, I have seven purge-free days under my belt, and I don't take it for granted. I don't know, I'm just, every day that I survive is like something to be proud of. Yeah, I feel weirdly optimistic. I, I feel like I want to see what happens. <laughs> Shortly after this interview, Christina launched a GoFundMe to pay for inpatient treatment for bulimia. It ended up shooting way past its goal, and she spent the past few weeks in a treatment facility. In a recent email, Christina told me her body is healing after years of abuse, and at the same time, she's feeling more emotions, some of them positive, some of them negative, all of them things she now has to deal with. She says treatment is a lot of work, but she hasn't regretted it. Christina has her own podcast about mental health. It's called Pickles and Vodka. You can find it at anchor.fm slash picklesandvodka. Corey, meanwhile, is still going to therapy. He says, of course, it hasn't instantly fixed everything. But he feels a little better today than when we last spoke. So, he says, that's something. And Jennifer is still finding ways to feel connected. Some days that means having dance parties with her three-year-old to the Blues Brothers soundtrack. Sometimes it just means exercising or taking little breaks from work. She looks forward to a day when she can sit down with a therapist again on a couch and look up at the framed degrees and the weird art on the walls and the book titles on their shelves. But in the meantime, she still takes comfort in the cycles of the moon and stars. Parts of this episode were about the difficulties people had getting help. But the fact is, there are resources out there. If you're having a mental health emergency, Washington State runs a 24-hour crisis hotline, 1-866-4-CRISIS. 
That's 1-866-4-CRISIS. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. And if you're not in crisis but feeling sad, anxious, or stressed, in Washington State, there's something called the Washington Listens Hotline. Someone will just talk with you and, if you need it, can help get you professional care. That's 1-833-681-0211. Transmission is made with help from the KNKX Newsroom. This episode was produced by me, Will James, and Jennifer Wing. Florangela Davila is our executive producer. Stay safe. We'll catch you next time on Transmission.